some years ago at a Christian conference that I attended, this was many years ago now, um, Dr. Howard Hendricks, and I don't know how many of you recognize that name, but he was a distinguished professor and chairman of the Center for Christian Leadership at Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, he shared that one of his favorite hobbies is collecting bulletin bloopers. Now, you've probably read plenty of those. Um, but I thought I'd share a couple of them with you this morning just to get off to a little bit of a light start. What does that mean? <laughs> Here they are. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> Thursday night potluck supper, prayer and medication to follow. Some of these are typos, so you have to really listen. Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church and community. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. This afternoon, there will be a meeting in the south and north ends of the church. Children will be baptized at both ends. And you've, you've heard this one before, I'm sure. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. If you've been in church circles for any length of time, you've likely heard most of those before. But I ran across a few this week that I had never encountered before. Listen to this one. In the bulletin, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he diets, yet shall he live. I love this one. If you choose to heave during the postlude, please do so quietly. And I thought of Glenn at our Christmas Eve service this past year after reading this next one. Instructions. The pastor will light his candle from the altar candles. The ushers will light their candle from the pastor's candle. Then the ushers will turn and light each worshiper in the first pew. <laughs> one more. Please welcome Pastor Don, a caring individual who loves hurting people. <laughs> That last blooper drew laughter from you because the grammatical emphasis was misplaced. As a bulletin blooper, it was humorous and certainly harmless. But in all seriousness, when the spiritual emphasis becomes misplaced in worship, his chosen sons and daughters, the people that worship God, to God it is no laughing matter if the spiritual emphasis is misplaced. I'd like you to turn to Malachi chapter 1. And this morning, I had planned on looking at verses 6 to 14. But as I prepared, we're just going to look at verse 6 this morning. Next week, we're going to follow it up with 7 to 14, because it was just too much in verses 7 to 14 that I did not want to streamline and so, I'm going to read the whole passage for you this morning, though, so follow along with me. Verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. That if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? 
says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you are profaning it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a strong word from your prophet Malachi. It was a strong word to your people in the Old Testament, and it is a strong application to your church in the 21st century. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that is open to your truth this morning and let us apply what we need to apply And let us be thankful for the things that don't refer to us. But in all things, may your name be praised. And may our lives be changed. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm not going to beat around the bush with you this morning. I'll be right up front. This is not going to be an easy text to hear. If you want your ears to be tickled, this text is not the one you'd normally go to. As I study the passage and begin to let it sink in, though, I find myself wanting to crawl into a hole. Why? Because God, through his Holy Spirit, not only illuminates my heart when I, when I come to this scripture, but it convicts me to the core. When I read verses like verse 6, the first part of the verse, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? Or when I read verse 10, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. It convicts me. Or verse 11, and 12, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you, Russ, 
are profaning me. Or verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. It is feared among the nations. See, I want to crawl under my desk when I open my Bible and read those verses. But the fact is, he's not just speaking to me. He's speaking to the whole church at large. And here's what I think he's saying. In worship, God desires wholehearted devotion, not half-hearted performance. That's what I think he's saying there. And his message through the prophet Malachi is directed at anyone who is not giving God their absolute best offering that they can whenever they worship him. Not perfect offering, but their best. Wholehearted devotion in worship is not about responding to him according to how you and I feel feel, it's about what we choose to do. It's not about better management of external uh, pressures and stress. It's about the need of a realigned heart. It's not about wanting a break from the Christian life. It's about the need for brokenness in a pride-filled world. As an old-time preacher incisively put it, when we have sung our hymns and said our prayers, we're not done with God. We're not done with God after we leave this place. The words of Malachi tell us plainly and definitively that we can go through all the motions of worship and deny with our actions everything that we have just done and said. It's your life that God wants. Not a few moments of reverent silence. Worship is complete when you have offered your life to God. In the words of Chuck Swindoll, we who worship our work and play at our worship have gotten things all fouled up. We have to admit it. And we have to humble ourselves in the sight of God in order to turn that trend around. How? In between the hard lines of this passage, I think we can draw out some promising principles of Scripture that God gives us here. And we're only going to get really through one today. But the first one is this. True worship begins by restoring a correct relationship with God. Verse 6 again. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. First thing I get out of this is that we must revere God as our father. God gets right to the heart of the issue here, the basics. What does he do? He points us right back to the Ten Commandments given on Sinai as the basis of his indictment against these people. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother. That's the commandment, right? We all know that. The Hebrew word honor literally means weight. And it refers figuratively to the concept of conveying honor, reverence, 
and glory to someone or something. When a son honors a father, he is giving weight to him, so to speak. By acknowledging his importance, his authority, his significance in a son's or daughter's life. Now in our culture and in our society, it's very, very different from the culture of the Old Testament, very different from some other cultures today when you talk about honor for a father or respect for a master. We don't even have a concept of what that is in other cultures because I don't think it's practiced much in American society. Not to the extent that it was here or should have been. No Israelite would deny the fact that his relationship, this relationship between a father and a son was required by God's law. In fact, it was practiced aggressively among the Jews. To dishonor a father or mother in the Old Testament was a serious enough charge to warrant the death penalty in Exodus chapter, chapter 21, verses 15 and 17, if you're taking notes. That's how important honor was in God's eyes and in that culture. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you revere God as your father? What does that mean in your mind? Let's move along. We must respect God as our master, it says here. If I am a master, where is my respect? The Old Testament also outlined the proper relationship to be maintained by servants toward their masters. Now, we probably don't have a clue what that means here unless we translate it practically into like an employer-employee type of a relationship. That relationship was to be one of respect, obedience, and devotion. A servant honored his master because he belonged to him by right of purchase. In that culture, he had no option but to obey. It's interesting that the word used for master here denotes a king or a god even. God initiates this line of reasoning by exposing the indisputable fact that he is the ultimate father and the king of his people. Throughout the Old Testament, this relationship becomes clear. You can read it all through the Old Testament in the prophets. Let me just show you one place in Isaiah chapter 64 in verse 8. Isaiah 64, verse 8. Actually, I'm going to read it from there because I've using a different translation. And yet, Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. My daughter is starting a business, a small business with uh, clay pots. She's a potter. We got her a, you know, a wheel and a she, we got a kiln over there, and I watch her sit down and throw these pots, and it's just amazing to me how anybody can get anything symmetrical on that spinning wheel. And I watch her hands form these pieces of pottery, and it is an amazing thing to me. But I know that she's not just going to throw a lump of clay on that wheel 
turn it on, let it spin, and have a pot formed all by itself. She has to create it. What is this text saying to us? It's saying that God is the potter and we are the clay. We are formed by his hand. He's in control of what he's doing to us. He's the master. He's the Lord. We're the clay. He's the potter. God's indictment here is severe. Isaiah communicated the same message when the people had forgotten and forsaken the correct relationship they needed to truly worship God. Turn back in Isaiah to chapter 1 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they are re have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manager. manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Like Isaiah, Malachi was the mouthpiece through which God was issuing a wake-up call to the people. The heart of the problem here was a problem of the heart. They had a broken relationship with God, and they had broken it, not God. They didn't revere him as their heavenly father, and they didn't respect him as their heavenly Lord. That, according to this scripture, is tantamount to despising God's name. Notice that in the text. You, O priest, who despise my name. By the way, in the Bible, the phrase, my name, denotes God himself, his character, his being, and all that surrounds who he is. In other words, in the Bible, God's name equals God. So, to despise God's name is the equivalent of despising God himself. That's serious stuff. Here's the deal. The principles of God's word do not change, only the names and the faces of the people involved. When true worship erodes in the church, it is because somewhere along the line, the father-son, father-daughter, servant-master relationship has gotten all fouled up, guaranteed that's where it begins. Guaranteed. Friends, if worship is not what it used to be for you, if you haven't experienced or encountered God for a long, long time, then I humbly urge you to begin your evaluation not by blaming everyone and everything else, i.e. the music, the people, the temperature, the lighting, but rather by looking deep in your heart at your relationship to God. Are you honoring him as your father? Are you respecting him as your Lord? Oh yeah, there's something else I'd like to point out. And I'm going to be very blunt about this too. This is a word addressed first, first to church and ministry leaders. 
including myself. The scripture says, I'm giving this word to you, O priests, who despise my name. In essence, he's calling to account the pastors and the worship leaders and the elders and all those who are in the position of ministering and representing God before the people. I identified this in the first message as trickle-down faithlessness. Mass spiritual erosion often begins at the leadership level and then proceeds to poison the pew. Of course, it can go the other way as well. But it needs to be checked by the leadership. Malachi began his prophetic message with God's bold love, and now he issues God's bold word. And it's directed first at those set apart for God's service. Warren Wearsby put it like this. He said, no ministry rises higher than its leaders. Interesting statement to contemplate. Great responsibility, then, demands great accountability. Jesus clearly reiterated that fact in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, when he said, And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask the more. Every leader needs to ask the question, Where is my heart? But that doesn't let the rest of you off the hook either. Remember the New Testament calls every single Christ follower a priest? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ look at verse 9 but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's all of us. The word is to all of us. Now, if you're like me, you're probably saying something like I did when I read it. Sure, I know that. God's my father. He's the potter. I'm the clay. I'm okay. You're okay. <laughs> the problem with that attitude, as Joyce Baldwin points out, is that sinful attitudes are most often secret faults, secret that is, from the consciousness of the sinner. We don't even know that we're sinning. But they are not excused on that ground. We can do all kinds of rationalization and blame shifting to sidestep our own sinfulness, but the sad fact is that many of us need desperately to search our hearts on this matter. Are we unconsciously 
dishonoring and disrespecting our father, our master, by the attitude that we have when we worship him. And I'm not just talking about worshiping him by singing songs. Do you dare ask that question of yourself? At this point, you might be thinking like the people of Malachi's day. Well, how have we done that? And the Lord might be responding, you're giving me second-rate worship. You're offering me half-hearted service. You're calling it sacrifice when in reality you haven't sacrificed anything. Fact is that I've called you to this service. If I am your father and you are my children, if I am your master and you are my servants, then you shouldn't be viewing your worship as some great sacrificial love offering because in reality, it is your reasonable service of worship. We are called to be living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or the King James Version says, reasonable service of worship. Now, spiritual in the New American Standard or reasonable in the King James Version refers to the logical, rational, reasoned response pertaining to your heart and mind. In other words, it's what should happen logically. It's rational. Let me read it to you out of the message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. That says it pretty clearly, doesn't it? David Livingston, the renowned and noble missionary to Africa, wrote in his journal these words. Let me read it to you. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word, he says, such a view and such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, he writes, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. 
He says, I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. It's quite a journal entry. A guy once asked Jesus, of all the commands, what's the big one? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Who do you love? Do you love God? Christians who offer a living sacrifice of themselves usually do not consider it to be a sacrifice. When we love deeply, love makes us do things we wouldn't ordinarily do. Is that right? It's true. Adapting an idea from Craig Rochelle, I can apply this to my own life. For example, I'm pretty cheap, but I'll spend big bucks on a gift for my wife. It's no sacrifice. What makes me do it? Love makes me do it. Another example, I hate cats. Don't email me about this. Just take it by faith. I hate cats. My daughter loves cats. So when she was growing up in our house, we had at least three of those good-for-nothing, furball-spitting, never-come-when-you-call-them cats. Why would I have three of something that I hate? Because I love my daughter. Love made me do it. When my grandson, Abel, asked me for the cherry off my ice cream sundae at Friendly's a few weeks ago when we were visiting, I gave it to him. No sacrifice. Why? I love him. Love made me do it. When my kids were two years old and pooped all over themselves and then vomited their spaghetti dinner with meatballs all over that at three o'clock in the morning, I got up, I cleaned up the mess. What made me do that? Actually, yeah, Denise made me do it. <laughs> but you get the point. In the celebration of discipline, Richard Foster wrote these words, worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. Its central reality is found in spirit and in truth. It's kindled within us only when the Spirit of God touches our human spirit. We have not worshiped the Lord until spirit touches spirit. Singing, praying, praising, all may lead to worship, but worship is more than any of them. Our spirit must be ignited by divine fire. In Leviticus chapter 20, in verse 26, it was written, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. How ironic, and yet how predictable, that the ones who are closest to sacred things are often the ones who desert the most basic responsibility of all, 
honoring the sacred one who is God. Intimacy with the holy sometimes erodes into indifference to the almighty. Familiarity in Malachi's day had bred contempt. Let me ask you, do you think that it can happen today? Can it happen to you? To me? To us as a church? Philip Yancey once wrote in Christianity Today of an experience that is unfortunately all too common among us. I want to close with this. He writes, I remember my first visit to Old Faithful Yellowstone National Park. Rings of Japanese and German tourists surrounded the geyser, their video cameras trained like weapons on the famous hole in the ground. A large digital clock stood beside the spot predicting 24 minutes until the next eruption. My wife and I passed the countdown in the dining room of Old Faithful Inn overlooking the geyser. And when the digital clock reached one minute, we, along with every other diner in the place, left our seats and rushed to the windows to see the big, wet event. I noticed, though, that immediately, as if on signal, a crew of busboys and waiters descended on the tables to refill our water glasses and clear away all the dirty dishes. When the geyser went off, we tourists ood and odd and clicked our cameras. A few even spontaneously applauded. But glancing back over my shoulder, I saw that not a single waiter or a single busboy, not even those who had finished their chores, even looked out the huge windows with a glance. Old faithful had grown entirely too familiar to them and it has, had lost its power to impress them. John Stott admitted the truth that many of us often feel but fail to confess. He said, the thing that I know will give me the deepest joy, namely to be alone and unhurried in the presence of God, aware of his presence, my heart open to worship him, is often the thing that I least want to do. Is that true of you? Has familiarity with the sacred and holy things, with God himself, caused us to lose our worship or our reverence or our honor for him? See, our Father in heaven is inviting us to come into his presence every moment of every day as an act of worship. And maybe you're a little reluctant to do so. Don't be. If you have received Jesus Christ by faith, he is waiting with open arms to meet with you. Worship him with all of your being. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for introducing us a little bit to your heart on the matter of worship. And as we think about and reflect 
on the rest of this passage over the next week. May we come prepared to give you our first and our best. May you be honored in our lives this week, Lord. Until we meet again, in Jesus' name, amen.